Good afternoon, everybody. This is Joe Cunningham here on the Joe Cunningham Show. News Talk 96.5 KPL 232-1542 if you want to be part of the conversation. Um, some some bad news, some personal news. Um, I thought I did a very good job, but apparently I did not. And I ended up with the baby and a slice of king cake. So uh, to all of my coworkers who may be listening right now, you will be inflicted with a homemade one on Monday because um, I'm I'm not paying king cake prices right now. Uh, although maybe buying the eggs would be just as expensive. I'm not sure. But uh, I, I tried really hard and I, and I had in the back of my head the like the Mari Povich thing. You were not the father as I was cutting into it. Thought I was safe, took a bite, and I was thoroughly let down. And I know that a lot of you listening have uh, similar experiences. But, yes, it will be my turn to provide one. Um, just uh, just a, a, a personal tragedy because I thought I was being successful when I wasn't. Anyway, 232-1542 if you want to be part of the conversation or send a message through the KPL app chat. Would love to visit with y'all. Today, lots of news stories to get through. Let's start with a national story, a poll I just saw. This one comes from Monmouth University. Uh, looking at the, na- at the 2024 National Republican primary, this is an interesting breakdown. I want, to, I want you guys to hear these totals. Um, in looking at who voters, who Republican voters are interested in voting for in a primary for 2024, Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump are tied at 33%. Mike Pence comes in for a third with 2%. Nikki Haley, 1%. Ted Cruz, 1%. Mike Pompeo, 1%. But here's where it gets interesting. In a head-to-head matchup between DeSantis and Trump, 53% favored DeSantis, 40% favored Trump. What's even more interesting is that when looking at their favorability and unfavorability, Ron DeSantis has an 80% favorability rating to his 6% unfavorability. Donald Trump comes in at 74% favorable, 18% unfavorable. Nikki Haley, 47% favorable, 11% unfavorable. This was a poll of uh, 566 registered voters. So... You do need to note that registered voter polling is not the most accurate. Uh, A likely voter poll would have given us probably more accurate numbers, but this kind of falls in line with the trends on the polling. And and I know how you guys feel about polling. You remember November, you remember 2020, you remember 2016, all of that. It's still important to pay attention to those trends because those trends actually do serve a purpose in kind of informing us where the American electorate is at in that moment. It's a snapshot of that time. And things can change. But right now, Ron DeSantis is having a very victorious string of victories as governor. Donald Trump has not been in office in two in going on three years. And it's very important that you pay attention to that. And voters are paying attention to that. And they're seeing Ron DeSantis fight for these uh, things that they care about right now. What will be interesting is when DeSantis shifts over to presidential mode, there's a story out from The Hill, I think, saying that DeSantis is inching closer to making a 2024 decision. But if he decides to run, DeSantis will have uh, he will have uh, he'll have to make a shift toward uh, more national policy. Right now, he's fighting culture war 
uh, issues, and he is winning, and he's getting a lot of voter support that way, and he's done a lot of things in the state of Florida, but he needs to transition over to a national platform before too long. Now, speaking of Republicans in a race, locally, you have a very interesting turn of events today. The mayor-president race gets its third announced candidate. We now have three Republicans running. You have Mayor President Josh Guillory, who uh, is the incumbent. He is a Republican. He will be running for re-election. Attorney Jan Swift has announced that she is running. And then you have Monique Blanco-Boulay, the daughter of former Democratic governor Kathleen Blanco. And she has announced she is running for governor as well. And is running as a Republican. So you have three candidates in the race with an R behind their name. And it will be interesting to see how this kind of plays out. Swift is kind of the odd person out in this. If it was just Swift and Guillory, I'm not sure how to take it. But the fact that you would have Guillory, who is the incumbent and a very recognizable political name in Blanco in the race... I think it's it, it's likely going to come down to those two. Now we haven't seen a Democrat or an independent jump in, and usually in local races, it kind of depends on the area. So you'll get a Republican and an independent who is most likely a Democrat. But that is kind of the lay of the land for that local election. And remember, presidential elections next year. We're going to start seeing things later this year, but presidential election is next year. These local and state races coming up in twenty twenty three have a much bigger impact on you and me. And that is something that we do need to remember when we're focusing on a lot of these issues. One of the reasons Ron DeSantis is so successful is that he listens to the voters in his constituency. He listens to the people of Florida. He is going along those lines rather than just necessarily fighting the state level stuff. I mean, fighting the national stuff. Now, there are national issues that he has addressed in Florida, but he's done so when it's come up in Florida. He's not just randomly fighting battles that they're afraid that something's going to happen in Florida, so they're taking preventative measures. No, they're actually fighting battles as they come up in Florida. And that's what's made him successful. What you're going to see at the state level for us is something similar. Is Jeff Landry going to be fighting on national cultural issues that we may or may not be seeing in the state of Louisiana? Or is he going to fight on these things that really are happening before our very eyes in the state of Louisiana, things that do need to change? We'll see on that. But I think it's interesting to see that locally, the, you know, the race that will impact you and me the most, who's going to be the leader of Lafayette Consolidated Government? Will Josh Guillory keep his job? Will it be somebody else taking over? What will the changes be? And more importantly, what are the platforms of the challenges? Because we know basically what Guillory is going to run. He's going to continue running on the same thing that he's been doing in office. He may have some new ideas, some new initiatives he wants to get to in another term. But you kind of know he's a known quantity. You don't know because they're not being super clear on it right now uh, what Monique Blanco-Boulay and what uh, Jan Swift will be bringing to the table. So I think that's that's. That's going to be kind of the key. And when these races develop, we'll see and hear more and more of that. Anyway, let's go ahead and take this break because I want to come back and I want to I want to talk about what I think is probably one of the more important stories of the day. And it is one of those national issues, but it is something that we do see 
even here in the state of Louisiana. I want to talk about gender-affirming care for minors because it's a topic we've been talking about, but there's a story that came out today I really want to make you guys aware of. Let's take this break, 232-1542, if you want to be part of the conversation. We'll be back in a moment on News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL 232-1542 if you want to be part of the conversation and uh, looking at the app chat, uh, Nicole checks in. Yes, the, finding the baby does mean luck and prosperity, but that's in the long term. In the short term, you've got to pay for either the cake or the eggs to make the king cake, which does not seem very prosperous given this economy. But you're absolutely right. Good thing that I, I did find it because of all that. Um, but it was really just more taking a bite of king cake and not expecting to come across a, 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 a hard piece of plastic. When you took, when you take the bite, uh, that was the bigger disappointment, I think, than actually finding the baby itself. Although making the plans, I've, I'm going to set time aside on on Sunday. It's the the recipe I have is is a longer recipe. It's a brioche style uh, dough to make it, so I've I've got to pull that recipe out. Uh, but I'm I'm going to do it because I had, I'd promised Bernie I was going to bring a homemade one anyway. Uh, so now's as good a time as any since I got the baby. But anyway, Nicole, thank you very much for checking in. If you want to check in, if you use the KPL app, whether you're listening through the app or you just happen to have it on your phone because you like catching all of our updates and, and news alerts, uh, if you open up the app, you download the app if you don't have it, but if you open it, there's a little chat button. It looks like a little text message button up at the top corner. You hit that, select general message. You can send a message to the show, and I read those either on or off the air depending on what the comment is and enjoy uh, responding to y'all's comments that way. So I don't have a whole lot of time in this segment, but I do want to kind of get started with, uh, I think this is probably the most important topic of the day. It's not really a story, but it's a whistleblower op-ed, and it's it's featured at a website called The Free Press. It's a Substack-based website. It's a uh, it's a new media operation by uh, journalist Barry Weiss, who was a columnist for the New York Times, uh, but left there because the New York Times newsroom had become very insulated, very much in the bubble, and did not allow any sort of counterthink to any of its basic ideas. Uh, the staff is very progressive, very uh, very much does not like any sort of different opinion, different thing, what they would deem wrong think or anything like that. And so Barry Weiss broke away and uh, is very comfortable challenging the conventions of both the left and the right in the pieces that get published at the free press. And this is one of those that uh, that I think everybody needs to read. This is by Jamie Reed. The title of the piece is, I thought I was saving trans kids, but now I'm blowing the whistle. You should know that Jamie Reed is not a conservative. For almost four years, I worked the Washington University School of Medicine Division of Infectious Diseases with teens and young adults who were HIV positive, she writes. Many of them were trans or otherwise gender nonconforming, and I could relate. Through childhood and adolescence, I did a lot of gender questioning myself. I'm now married to a trans man, and together we are raising my two biological children from a previous marriage and three foster children we hope to adopt. So given that background right there, you can probably pretty easily confirm this is not a conservative speaking out against 
trans trans affirming care that that key phrase trans affirming care for youth for minors this is somebody who very much believes or believed at one time that it was right and proper to be providing that level of care the center's working assumption was that the earlier you treat kids with gender dysphoria, the more anguish you can prevent later on. This premise was shared by the center's doctors and therapists. Given their expertise, I assumed that abundant evidence backed this consensus. During the four years I worked at the clinic as a case manager, I was responsible for patient intake and oversight. Around a thousand distressed young people came through our doors. The majority of them received hormone prescriptions that can have life-altering consequences, including sterility. I left the clinic in November of last year because I could no longer participate in what was happening there. By the time I departed, I was certain there was I was certain that the way the American medical system is treating these patients is the opposite of the promise we make to do no harm. Instead, we are permanently harming the vulnerable patients in our care. Today I am speaking out. I'm doing so knowing how toxic the public conversation around this highly contentious issue and the ways that my testimony might be misused. I am doing so knowing that I am putting myself at serious personal and pro and professional risk. Almost everyone in my life advised me to keep my head down, but I cannot in good conscience do so because what is happening to scores of children is far more important than my comfort. And what is happening to them is morally and medically appalling. So Reed writes and, and breaks down what this particular center did, but it's also reflective of what a lot of these gender-affirming centers do for young kids and minors. And it's, it's worth the discussion. You know, I've meant, I mean, you guys are probably tired of hearing it by now, but having spent just shy of a decade in a classroom, I met a lot of kids and I dealt with a variety of issues, physical, mental, emotional, and otherwise. And it is always fascinating to see just that level of diversity among students. And yes, I did come across and I did teach and I did interact with students who were questioning their own gender identity. And it is a very tough situation to be in as a teacher. On the one hand, if you believe that a child is too young to make that decision for themselves, how do you go about treating that kid fairly? Because the kid is having identity problems. These are anxiety-induced problems or anxiety-inducing problems. That if you say just the wrong thing, if you refer to them by the wrong name, if you refuse to acknowledge who they think they are as a person, you risk alienating a student who trusted you enough to tell you in the first place when they didn't even trust their parents to tell them. At the same time, do you worry and do you want to warn your student that if they aren't careful, they are heading into a situation they may not be fully prepared for? And that's the risk that every teacher who has a trans student that comes up to them, that's a risk that a teacher has to deal with day in and day out. Whether or not they believe in gender-affirming care for young teens and teenagers, how do you make sure that a kid in a vulnerable position gets the help they need? More on this, really break it down after this bottom-of-the-hour news break. 
Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL 232-1542 if you want to be part of the conversation or send a message through the KPL app chat. So I've been talking about this article at uh, thefp.com. It's the free press. Uh, this article, I thought I was saving trans kids. Now I'm blowing the whistle by Jamie Reed. So you know, before the break, I was mentioning um, you know, one of the toughest things as a teacher is when a kid trusts you enough to tell you something they may not even trust their parents with, like they identify as a different gender. And it puts you as a teacher in kind of an awkward position, whether or not you are fully supportive or, or anything like that. You don't want to risk alienating that particular student. And it becomes kind of an issue, uh, you know, your own personal feelings. Uh, how do you support the student? Because your job as a teacher ultimately at the end of the day is to support your students and help them grow and be successful both in and out of the classroom. Now, there are obviously controversies that come with that, you know, district policies that say you only refer to a child by their legal name. Uh, You know, it's you may have a nickname for the student that kind of relates more to their identity than their uh, than their name, than their you know legal name. Uh, You know, what do you tell the parents? Do you tell the parents? Uh, I was in charge of the yearbook and there was a student that had told me that they had identified as a different gender, but. Uh, you know, I was in charge of the yearbook at the time, and I you know, talked to the student privately. I said, how do you want to be identified in the yearbook? And they thought about it, and they said, well, I don't want my parents to find out, so uh, just go by my legal name, which I would have had to do anyway, as as the rules would have stated, but to ask the kid kind of helps you build that rapport. So if they if they do have an issue, they feel like they can come to you, and you want to, again, support the kids. And whether you think that's right or wrong, the the point is to help in whatever way that you can. There's a big difference, though, between supporting and pushing kids to take part in treatments and procedures that can have permanent life-altering effects. And that is what Jamie Reed is writing about in this particular piece. Until 2015 or so, a very small number of these boys comprised the population of pediatric gender dysphoria cases. Then, across the Western world, there began to be a dramatic increase in a new population, teenage girls, many with no previous history of gender distress, suddenly declared they were transgender and demanded immediate treatment with testosterone. I certainly saw this at the center, Reed said. One of my jobs was to do intake for new patients and their families. When I started, there were probably 10 such calls a month. When I left, there were 50, and about 70% of the new patients were girls. Sometimes clusters of girls arrived from the same high school. The girls who came to us had many comorbidities, depression, anxiety, ADHD, eating disorders, obesity. Many were diagnosed with autism or had autism-like symptoms. A report last year on a British pediatric transgender center found that about one-third of the patients referred there were on the autism spectrum. Frequently, our patients declared that if they, that they had disorders no one believed that they had. We had patients who said they had Tourette's syndrome, but they didn't. They, they had tic disorders, but they didn't. That they had multiple personalities, but they didn't. And this is something that, like in the medical community, you do see in classrooms and and in schools across the country. You see, especially in the wake of COVID-19, kids who were out of school for months, who were isolated from their friends, their only solace was in social media, many of them on TikTok. And TikTok in particular, its algorithms pushed a lot of that 
gender dysphoria content to those whose web searches and whose histories on the Internet and whose metadata show that that was the kind of thing they were looking at. So the algorithm picked up on that and gave them more and more and more until you had influencers with massive followings basically convincing kids that they are not who who they've been told they were. And so these kids get the idea into their head that they are something different. And maybe it's because of social isolation. Maybe it's because of bullying. Maybe it's because of one of the other things that Reed mentions in her piece. But something already made them feel different, and they turned to a different identity to try to escape that. Social isolation has a way of forcing your attention on things maybe you shouldn't be focused on. And those influencers on social media absolutely will pick up on that, and and they will push that. And it's extreme behavior, especially for girls. Not necessarily so much on TikTok, but you also have, between Instagram and Snapchat, you have these unattainable standards of beauty and femininity. And it gets to the point where girls in that situation almost seem to give up. And they just decide that they would rather be a boy so they don't have to deal with that level of social pressure. It's almost an escape for them. Reed also notes, and I think this is another fascinating point, that there is an increasing number of children from broken homes and those with mental disorders who were showing up and declaring that they had gender, uh, gender dysphoria. And there are several over, overlapping systems, uh, symptoms with several of those claiming a gif- different gender. Like I mentioned, they, had, they were on the autism spectrum. So there's lots of comorbidities. There's lots of other things that present and because of the way they present these kids, after all the exposure to social media and all the uh, culture around them, they've decided that they are something different. We have this broken society. We do. We have a broken society that is focusing on a, on a lot of the wrong things. And it opens our kids up to experiences that I'm not going to say are inherently bad, but they don't get proper guidance and direction through. And it's very, it's very, very difficult for a well-meaning teacher or a well-meaning physician to be able to help guide those kids through if they are working from the assumption that this is all just internal, that this is all truly inside the kid, and you aren't taking those social pressures and those cultural pressures and that cultural brokenness into account. There is a lot of acceptance behind the scenes that a lot of the transgender and gender dysphoria movement that you're seeing right now is really more a social contagion than it is anything that is truly about gender dysphoria in those students. That the social pressures of being different, of being identifiable, that those pressures are what's guiding kids to decide that they have gender dysphoria, to decide that they are a different gender than what they were born as. But it's not just that. Reed also goes deep into some of the problems that come from some of these treatments. Many encounters with patients, she wrote emphasized to me how little these young people understood the profound impacts changing gender would have on their bodies and minds. 
but the center downplayed the negative consequences and emphasized the need for transition. As the center's website said, left untreated gender dysphoria has any number of consequences from self-harm to suicide. But when you take away the gender dysphoria by allowing a child to be who he or she is, we're noticing that goes away. The studies we have show these kids often wind up functioning psychosocially as well or better than their peers. But, Reed notes, there are no reliable studies showing this. Indeed, the experiences of many of the center's patients prove how false these assertions are. On Friday, May 1st, 2020, a colleague emailed me about a 15-year-old male patient. Oh dear, I'm concerned that the patient does not understand what bicalutamide does. I responded, I don't think that we start anything right now, honestly. This medication is used to treat metastatic prostate cancer, and one of its side effects is that it feminizes the body of men who take it, including the appearance of breasts. The center prescribed this cancer drug as a puberty blocker and feminizing agent for boys. As with most cancer drugs, bicalutamide has a long list of side effects, and this patient experienced one of them, liver toxicity. He was sent to another unit of the hospital for evaluation and immediately taken off the drug. Afterward, his mother sent an electronic message to the transgender center saying they were lucky that her family was not the type to sue. A 17-year-old biological female patient who was on testosterone said that she was bleeding from her vagina. In less than an hour, she had soaked through an extra heavy pad, her jeans, and a towel she had wrapped around her waist. The center found out later the girl had had intercourse, and because testosterone thins that tissue, it had ripped. Sorry if you have kids in the car. But these are the side effects. These are the things that don't get talked about. Some of these medications affect the genitals. They, they, they cause atypical genitalia formations. And you read this column to see specifically what But as a result, kids are literally becoming deformed through this and through surgical procedures. And this is what a lot of the loudly pro-trans kid crowd is okay with. When these kids don't fully understand what they're getting themselves into, and the parents don't even fully understand what these kids want to get into, And then these side effects and these terrible things start coming forward, start appearing. We live in a broken society that is pushing these things. I have a lot of respect and a lot of compassion for students who find themselves questioning their gender identity. But rather than prescribing pills and medications and creams and everything else like that, and and rather than uh, say you need, you know, couple, couple uh, sessions with a therapist and then you can have surgery. Those kids need to speak to a counselor for a long time, a year to fully explore their feelings, what's causing these feelings, and whether or not they understand the risks involved. Whether or not they know what exactly would happen to them and to their bodies should they take these medications or get this surgery. There is not enough 
mental preparation, counseling, therapy to get these kids prepared for such a thing. And that is a huge, huge concern. All right, let's take this final break, 232-1542, if you want to call in or send a message through the KPL app chat. We're going to take this break. When we come back, I regret to inform you Luke Skywalker is gay. We'll have that and more here on the Joe Cunningham Show. News Talk 96.5, KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5, KPL. 232-1542, if you want to be part of the conversation. Um, however... I do have to get to this. Disney Plus star leans toward exploring Luke Skywalker's LGBT status. So in an interview not too long ago, Mark Hamill, who played Luke Skywalker, uh, who is himself is very progressive. Uh, Hamill said, if you think Luke Skywalker is gay, of course he is. You know, it's, it's it more, more important is what Luke Skywalker did than what he, what, you know, or who he loves, uh, which is a fair assessment. This is the guy who played Luke Skywalker and has played Luke Skywalker since the beginning. Um, didn't outright say that Luke Skywalker is gay, but if you believe he's gay, then sure. Why not? That's what Mark Hamill was saying. Well, there was a debate in the online Star Wars fandom over pronouns and LGBT status. And now um, you have uh, you have this whole push from Disney Plus, I guess, to to basically say, hey, we, we, we are going to explore this, as a matter of fact. We don't have to apply sexuality to all of the popular characters, though, do we? We don't need Luke Skywalker to be gay. We don't need Luke Skywalker to be straight. Luke Skywalker, if anything, is an incel. He kissed his his sister once, got mad at the Jedi, and went and lived in isolation on a planet until he was discovered by some Mary Sue character named Rey. Luke Skywalker is an incel, I think that, rather than think that he's gay or straight or whatever. We don't need all the popular characters to have some sort of LGBT identity. It does. It doesn't have to be that way. It, it never had to be that way. But this is the kind of cultural push that we're getting now. There's an online argument about it. Disney bows to it and says, "Okay, we can consider making Luke gay or, or whatever." I'm tired of it, y'all. Why can't we just enjoy characters for what they do on screen, not who they do off screen? Please, for the love of God. Anyway, that is it from me. I will be back in 23 hours to round out the week. In the meantime, follow me on Twitter at Joe P. Cunningham, Facebook.com slash Joe Cunningham Show. And, of course, subscribe on Substack to JoeCunninghamShow.substack.com or email me, Joe, at RedState.com. Talk to you guys again real soon. Shannon is offsides next here on News Talk 96.5 KPL.